0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: We're looking this morning, as you've just heard, at Genesis 18. And as I look at the whole chapter in Genesis 18, we're only going to deal with part of it today. But as I look at all of the things that happen, namely this meal together, as I read the text between the Lord and two angels and Abraham, and then the uh, incredible intercession of Abraham and the Lord, the encounter they have over the destruction of Sodom, I just see the whole thing in terms of intimacy, that uh, God desires to be intimate with Abraham, and he draws near uh, to Abraham in intimacy. And that's something we need. You may not be willing to admit it, but you need intimacy. You need relationship. Uh, There are people that right now, through acute loneliness, a sense of isolation, know that intimacy is the thing they need the most. Others don't know that, perhaps, caught into the busyness of life, uh, they may not know that what they really are is lonely. I've seen a 90-year-old woman with no living relatives and no friends sitting and waiting with a pack of cards in her hand, waiting for my weekly visit. Uh, she wasn't much of a conversationalist at that point in her life, but uh, she she knew how to play cards. And we would get together every week, and she was waiting for that. I was always convicting when I come around the corner to see her ready and waiting. She wanted a relationship. I've seen a picture of... Uh, Teenage orphans standing in a line looking at yet another set of prospective parents, hoping, the look on their face you can't describe, it hoping that this might be the time that they would be adopted. But they've been through this so many times before, and so there's they're hoping against hope that today they might be adopted into a family. I've seen in another country, another culture, men who are so married to their work that they are never home during the work week at all they spend more time with the company employees and with other people they come home late at night while the wives are left at home to raise the children uh, not this culture but another one but a total lack of intimacy between the husband and wife i've sat and prayed and and cried with and talked to a, a very overweight seminary student in his mid to late 30s who thought that he would never get married and that there was no one out there for him to share uh, life with, and that broke his heart. I've seen a picture of of a Norman Rockwell painting. Perhaps you've seen it of a, of a married couple, still relatively young, sitting at breakfast table, and the woman is looking toward you, the observer, and the man has got his face buried in the newspaper. She's kind of leaning close to the table, um, her hand's close to his, but his hand's on the newspaper, and she's looking dejected and rejected, and she wants intimacy, Uh, with her husband, but he's interested in the current events. I've seen these things, but I've never seen the perfect and absolute intimacy that the father and the son enjoyed before the foundation of the world. I've heard about it, I've read about it, but I've never seen it. And I'm hungry for it, aren't you? I want to be drawn into the very presence of God. I want to know him, and I want to love him, and I want to feel back the love that he intends to give. And you know, he created the world... Not out of need. There was no need. In the Trinity, they were eternally blessed. All of their needs for intimacy and friendship, all of them met. But they created male and female. They created man in the image of God, able to receive and give that kind of intimacy. But sin entered in, didn't it, and destroyed everything. And it's been God that's been working to bring us back into relationship, one with another, yes, but ultimately with him, that we would be reconciled to our creator, that we would be intimate with him. And I see that in this chapter and many other places, but I see it here. If you look with me at uh, this chapter, beginning at verse one and two, it says the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to the tent, to his tent in the heat of the day. Now to me, verse one, is very important. There are lots of different interpretations about who these three individuals are. Some say they're just three angels, some two angels and the Lord, perhaps the angel of the Lord, perhaps Jesus Christ, uh, before he was incarnate through the Virgin Mary. That's the way I read it. I read that this is the Lord and two angels. Now, if you have a different uh, interpretation in the text, and if the Lord gives you a chance to preach a sermon on Genesis 18, you can do it differently then. But I'm going to read it that this is uh, intimate fellowship between the Lord and two of his angels and Abraham. Because the Lord appeared to Abraham. Do you see that right there in verse 1? And it's the Lord that remains standing there, or Abraham remains standing before the Lord when he intercedes. There's a continuity in the text here uh, of encounter between God and Abraham. And so it says, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby, and when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed down low to the ground. Now, the first thing I want to say about intimacy with God is you only get as far as God permits. Let me say that again. You will only get as far in intimacy with him as he permits. You understand that, don't you? And that's something, in effect, that works in all relationships. You can only be as intimate with another individual as they open up and allow you to be. And how much more is it true of God than it is of a king or an emperor in the world? When I was living in Japan, you couldn't just get close to the emperor. You know, you couldn't wake up and say or or make, a, you know, your your New Year's resolutions. I'd like to be the emperor's friend this year. You know, I'd like to get close and I'd like us to be friends. Uh, That's not going to happen if he doesn't want it to happen. Well, if that's true of a figurehead emperor like that in Japan, how much more is it true of the eternal God of the universe? You only get as far as God permits. And therefore, what I say is in this text and in other places too, it's God who must take initiative and in intimacy. He's the one that comes to us. He's the one that sets the pace. He's the one that discloses himself to us. He reveals himself or he doesn't. It's God who takes the initiative here with Abraham. And the beautiful thing is that God has taken initiative with us in Christ, hasn't he? He's drawn very near. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He he has come and drawn near to us. He's tabernacled with us. We have seen him in the flesh. We beheld his glory. He is God in the flesh. He's taken initiative. And here he is with Abraham taking initiative. And so the Lord comes and we see immediately Abraham's model of hospitality. Don't we? And this is, a, this is a, a great textbook here in Genesis 18 on how to be hospitable. There are many biblical commands on hospitality. In 3 John 8, it says, We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. The, one of the major themes, if not the only theme of 3 John, is how church people, Christian people, should open their homes up and welcome those that are traveling for the sake of the gospel. There should be hospitality, Elders in 1 John 3 are specifically commanded to be hospitable, to open their homes to uh, strangers. Titus 1.8 uh, uses the word which literally means loving the stranger, that we would cherish the stranger, the person we don't know. And then Jesus in Matthew 10, when he sent the uh, 12 disciples out two by two to do gospel ministry, he said, Whatever town or village you enter, search for a worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. And then at the end of the chapter, he talks about what that worthy person might get for hospitality. And he said in Matthew 10:40, he who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will never lose his reward. What an incredible incentive to hospitality. Even a cup of cold water will never fail to be rewarded. Eternally, God will remember. And so the key verse on this, I think, Hebrews 13, 2, which says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Isn't that a little bit of a commentary here on on Genesis 18? Did, Did Abraham know who these men were? No, this is just who Abraham was. And if he hadn't been like this, the encounter would have gone differently, I think. And so he's hospitable. He's ready. And so he gets up and he serves. Now, what are the qualities of hospitality that we see? Well, first, eagerness and preparedness. Look at verse 2. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He's ready to serve. He's eager. He's prepared. He's got a mindset. And that's not just having all of the guest linen out or or having a, a guest room. It really is a matter of the heart, isn't it? It's not a matter of how much space you have in your house or if you have extra set of, of uh china or dishes an extra place setting that you could put out that's not it it's a, it's a heart disposition of eagerness and preparedness he's sitting ready and as soon as he sees an opportunity he moves and so secondly we see humility in verse 10 abraham bowed low to the ground now keep in mind if if hebrews 13:2 is talking about this encounter and perhaps the next one with lot in uh, sodom uh they don't know who they, he he doesn't know that they're angels He didn't know who they are. This is just who he is. And so therefore, he's a very humble man. Do you see that? He bows low to the ground. He's ready to serve. He's got an incredible heart, humility. And then you see graciousness here. Look at verse 3 through 5. He says, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Uh, Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way. And now that you've come to your servant, there's a graciousness here, isn't there? A sweetness of disposition. It's inviting. It makes you want to come in. And along with that comes cheerfulness. He says in verse 3, if I found favor in your eyes, don't pass me by. Give me a chance to do this for you. There's an eagerness there, a willingness to serve. It's as though they are doing him a great honor and a, a big favor to come in and let him serve. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Oh, there's a big difference between being a giver and being a cheerful giver, isn't there? Have you ever been on the receiving end of just giving? It's not too pleasant, is it? But on the receiving end of cheerful giving, now that's a blessing. That's a great blessing. So it says in 1 Peter 4, 9, offer hospitality without grumbling, that's another one of those verses that tells me that not only has God not changed at all, we haven't changed much, if at all. Offer, offer hospitality without grumbling. Why would you be tempted to grumble when the time for hospitality comes? Oh, come on, think with me. Why would you tend to be? Wouldn't it be because they're taking up your space, they're eating your food, they're, you bump into them as you walk around the corner, you know, They they maybe just live differently than you do. They certainly do take up bathroom space. There's no question about that. And so all kinds of things go on. Your house is thrown into a different pattern when you're hospitable. And even more so as the time goes on. And therefore, it takes a certain graciousness and a spirit-filled mentality to offer hospitality without grumbling. Proverbs 23, 6 through 8. So incisive. I love the book of Proverbs. So honest about human nature. So honest. And so it says, do not eat the food of a stingy man and do not crave his delicacies, for he is the kind of man who is always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you, He will vomit up the little you have eaten and have wasted your compliments. He's not thinking about, I hope you're enjoying this. I really want you to be pleased. I want your needs to be met. He's thinking about how much it costs to have you over. And I don't think that there are many that can be thinking about that and not convey it subtly to the person who's eating. But uh, Abraham didn't do that. He's a generous, cheerful, gracious giver, isn't he? And look at his compassion as well. He considers the physical needs of his guests, the heat of the day, their tired feet, the need for shade and rest. That involves compassion, getting up out of yourselves, right? Thinking about what somebody else needs, what their needs are. And so it says in verse 4, let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet. And rest under the tree. Now, this is interesting to me. You may all wash your own feet. You see, isn't that interesting? I'm not saying that that's intensive in the Hebrew, but that's what it says. You may wash your own feet. Do you remember another foot washing when Jesus did it for somebody else? You see, even the lowest servant didn't do this for somebody. You let me provide some water and you can wash your feet. And it was not expected. No servant would be expected to do this. And there's Jesus down on his hands and knees, washing his disciples' feet. What an incredible picture of lowliness. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do for each other as I've done for you. And so the lowest of the low, that's what Jesus was, lower than any, even Abraham here didn't do that. But he said, let a little water be brought. But he's compassionate, and he's a servant. He uses terms like, my Lord, and now that, you know, give me a chance to serve. There's an attitude here of servanthood and of generosity. Look at verse 6 through 8. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and and says, quick, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf. Now think about a calf. That's a big animal, really. And it's the best. I mean, this, he's giving the best here, the choice tender calf, and gave it to a servant who hurried uh, to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Now, I've thought a lot about this encounter. And uh, I wonder how long it took To take the three Sias of flour and, you know, knead bread and cook it. And, you know, how long did it take to slaughter a calf and prepare it and set it in front of? This was not McDonald's, okay? This wasn't six minutes. This took a long time. I just think we're in too big a rush. Do you get that feeling? We've become so hurried that we cannot show hospitality to one another. It takes too much time. But these folks were there for hours, literally. And almost you have to go overseas to see this kind of thing. The hospitality, the generosity, the willingness to just be there and be together for a long time. Well, all of that hospitality merely set the table, as it were, or set the set the course for intimacy with God. Hospitality set the door, opened the door for intimacy. God is hospitable to us. And we reflect that to one another by being like Abraham here. Abraham did not know who these men were. It didn't matter to him. He just wanted to treat them right. And so he opens the door for intimacy with God. Now, along the way, we also see some things about Abraham's family life too, don't we? Let's take a minute and look at what glimpses we can get of the way his family was structured. Okay, Abraham is, in this account, the unquestioned head of his household. Do you see that? There's no doubt about it. He's the head of the house. He gives orders to his wife. He gives orders to his servants. He takes responsibility for the uh, guests. He doesn't leave that to his wife. He is out in front, meeting the, the guests, and he himself is serving alongside them. He's working just as hard as they are, but he's the he's the head. He's a servant leader in his house. Sarah graciously submits to her husband. There's no arguing back. Like we're just out of fle- fresh flour, I tell you, you know, and none of the give and take. You know what I'm talking about? She just goes, and she she knows. She wants to be as hospitable as he does. They're on the same page here. There's no difference. And so she's ready to go. And, and he says to her, quick, get three seas of fine flour. Fine flour, the best you've got. And uh, knead it and bake some bread. Later on in the passage, we're not going to get to it today, but just look at verse 12 after... Actually, we'll get to part of it today. But verse 12, uh, Sarah laughed to herself, it says, and uh, it says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old... Shall I have this pleasure? Interesting what she calls him. Adon is the Hebrew word from which we get the word Adonai, which is another word for God. It simply means my Lord or my master. One in authority over me. That's what she calls him. Peter picks up on this, this very title of respect here in 1 Peter 3, talking about wives. And he says this, Your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear." Sarah is a godly role model here, isn't she, of a woman who submits graciously to her husband. And then you see Abraham's servants graciously submit also to his leadership, his authority. He tells the servant to do what what to do, and he obeys immediately. Look at verse 7. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Do you see the hurry? Abraham is able to keep his servants moving along. There's no sluggishness here because the servant loves his master and wants to obey It's important to the servant that the master looks good here with these guests. And so his home is well-ordered. Do you see that? And what a godly testimony. What a godly testimony is a well-ordered home. What a powerful weapon in the hands of the Lord for the advance of the kingdom. A home like this. A man who's the head, not the passive male syndrome, hanging back, waiting. But he's leading. He's a servant. The wife loves her husband, graciously submits. Any that are in the household also submitting. And so we see Abraham taking uh, an active role. He's a hard worker and his home is well-ordered. Look at God's assessment of Abraham's family in future, verse 18 and 19. It says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that... The Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. You know what I get out of this? A well-ordered home was essential to the carrying out of the plan of God here. Follow the logic. Look at 18 and 19. Note the so that's and the for's. Abraham will be a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. That's the original Genesis 12 promise for I have chosen him. So God's choosing of Abraham is the ground of him being a great and powerful nation and a blessing to the ends of the earth, unconditional election for the purpose of blessing the ends of the earth. Well, I've chosen him so that he will direct his children after him to keep the way of the Lord. Do you see the connection there? In order for him to fulfill that role, he's got to direct his children to keep the way of the Lord so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Do you see that? How important and essential is a well-ordered home to the redemptive plan of God. And Abraham, our father in faith, an example of a godly home. Then comes the fellowship meal. It says in verse 8, he then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, uh, he stood near them uh, under a tree. And so we see this fellowship. the, uh, The deepest desire of God as revealed in Scripture in terms of our relationship with him is this kind of intimacy and fellowship. He wants to remove the sin barrier so that he can sit at table with us. Isn't that incredible? God and man at table are sat down. What a beautiful song. Wasn't that incredible? Encourage Connie later. It was just beautiful. What a great message. God and man at table are sat down. God has an interest in this over and over in Scripture. For example, in Exodus 24, 7 through 11. Don't turn there, but just listen. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, And said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood, a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, making it possible for us to sit at table with him. You see what I'm talking about? Without the shed blood, there's no reconciliation. There's no forgiveness. And if you're sitting today listening to me and you are not saved, you're not in a right relationship with God, there's only one way that that can happen for you. The blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus the blood of Jesus Christ alone can remove the barrier to intimacy and fellowship. And so this is the blood of the covenant. Then it says Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, with the 70 elders of Israel, went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a, an expanse made of sapphire. Clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against the elders of the Israelites. They saw God and, And they sat down and ate to eat and drink. Isn't that incredible? Fellowship. They saw God and they ate and drank. A fellowship meal with God. You get the same thing in Leviticus 3 with the fellowship offerings. Portion gets burned up to God symbolically. That's the part he eats. He consumes it. And then there's a portion eaten by the priests that are taking part in the fellowship offering. And then there's Psalm 23. Psalm 23. In which the psalmist says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God and man a table sat down forever. That's what David wanted out of his relationship with God. And then there's Christ teaching. He taught much about this. Matthew 8, Jesus said, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There's a feast in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus' parables, Matthew 22, 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Do you want to sit at that table? I do. Oh, I want to be there. Not just to taste the food. I wonder what that will be like. I have an interest in that. But especially that the host of table would be adored. That we could worship the one who paid the price to get us there. He's the feast, isn't he? He's the feast. He's the one that we get when we die. And so Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. That's Luke 22.15. That's an insight into Christ, isn't it? I wanted to do this. I have yearned to eat this meal with you. It's interesting to me, and I've noted before, that after the resurrection of Christ, there are four encounters that have to do with food. I find that interesting. I don't just take it lightly. I think it's significant that Jesus spends a lot of time eating things after his resurrection. For example, he takes the uh, piece of broiled fish in front of them all in Luke 24 and proves that he's got a resurrection body. He says, in effect, I'm set to go for the wedding banquet, looking forward to it. He's got, a, he's got a resurrection body. He can eat fish and consume it. Before that, on the road to Emmaus, remember, it wasn't until he took bread and broke it that their eyes were open and they realized who he was. A fellowship meal, sitting at table with Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And then in Acts 4. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift the Father is going to send, the Holy Spirit. So he's sitting there eating with them. And then there's the fish broiling thing going on in John 21 as he was making breakfast for them. That's four post-resurrection eating encounters. But how much more then? the promise of eternal fellowship with God. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Intimate fellowship is what that's talking about. And then the final wedding banquet, when it says that God himself will be with them and be their God. And it says in Revelation 19.9, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, And then he added, these are the true words of God. And so we see the intimate meal, intimate fellowship uh, between Abraham and God. The second aspect of intimacy that we're going to look at this morning is the personal revelation to Abraham about Sarah. Essential to intimacy is sharing knowledge. The fact that we know things about each other. We know what we're doing. We we, We lay our plans open and we lay our hearts open to each other. He says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends because a master doesn't let a servant know everything he's doing. But you are my friends because everything that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. There's an intimacy, and that means I'm going to share my plans with you. And so there's an advancing knowledge here concerning the covenant. Look at verse 9 and 10. Where is your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he said, then he said, or the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, this is the advancing of the covenant. We've seen this, haven't we? It's just being unfolded, unfolded, or perhaps like a scroll, just rolled out a little more, a little more, a little more knowledge, a little more knowledge every time. First, leave your country and your people, Abraham, Ur of the Chaldeans, leave your country and your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Then when, once he gets to the land, he says, I will give this land to you and to your offspring forever. And then when he comes back to the land, after the time in, in, in Egypt, he comes back and he tells him more about the extent of the land after that conflict he has with Lot or their shepherds have. And then in the great chapter, the covenant chapter, Genesis 15, he reveals to him that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And he tells him specifically what tribes are going to be removed from the land so that his offspring can inherit it forever. And the covenant-cutting ceremony is so powerful. And then in Genesis 17, a little further with the covenant sign of circumcision and more things revealed, he said, it's specifically through Sarah's son Isaac, okay? Hagar, no. Ishmael, no. It's specifically, specifically through Sarah and through Isaac that your offspring will be named. And now here in this chapter, we have more unrolling. I'm going to tell you exactly when it's going to happen. Sometime in the next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Oh, the light at the end of the tunnel. How long has this couple been waiting? He's 99 years old. He's going to be 100 years old when Isaac's born. Sarah is 90. They've been waiting an awfully long time. And so the time has come. Well, not only is it an advancing knowledge of God's redemptive plan and his timing, But there's an advancing knowledge here of Sarah's heart. Sarah reveals her heart a little bit here. Look at verses 10 through 15. It says, Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. And Sarah was well past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Verse 15, Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. (laughs) But he said, Yes, you did laugh. And so we see the unfolding of Sarah's own heart. And this is what God's redemptive plan does in part. As circumstances around you change, you're going to start to get to know who you are. And sin is going to bubble to the surface. And it's always painful, isn't it? I mean, the greatest pain in my life, and probably in yours too, is our own sin. It's my own sin for me, isn't it? It's the thing that hurts the most. And we didn't know it was in there, but it, it's been there all along. God knew it. He searches our hearts and our minds. And so what he does is he creates circumstances that causes stuff to bubble to the surface. For me, it was uh, a great learning time when I went on a mission trip, summer of 86 in Kenya. I never realized how independent and how selfish I was in one in some specific ways until I went on the mission field. And I saw the giving generosity and the hospitality of other people. And I saw how I responded to that in certain situations. And at one point, I was just broken. I really was. And I just got down on my knees and said, God, forgive me for who I am. Forgive me for being such a sinner. And the Lord is so gracious to forgive because, you know, he's not looking at our righteousness anyway. That's a null set. There's nothing there. He's looking at Christ. But he's brought me to a deeper realization of how much I needed Jesus. And that's what's happening for Sarah here you know the circumstances around uh, come and she hears the promise but she doesn't believe it and so she laughs about it now you may say now this isn't fair abraham got to laugh and it was it was a good thing in genesis 17 remember how he falls face down and laughs and 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 uh, he's just marveling there and god doesn't rebuke him and the child is named isaac which means laughter And so the whole thing is a positive thing in Genesis 17. This is not positive. And so only God can look at the outside, Abraham laughing, and that's one thing, Sarah laughing, and it's something else. And only God can stand at the outside and say, that's a problem right there. What happened right there, that was not right. With Abraham, it must have been a laugh of joy. With Sarah, it was a laugh of unbelief. And so he's he's needing to unfold this and to show it to her. She staggers in unbelief. And she uses a terrible weapon of womankind, and that is the mocking laugh. And it isn't it isn't a light matter here. It's a serious matter. When God says something, we believe and we trust. And so there can be no mockery when it comes to the word of God. She's laughing at him, and so he brings it to the surface. He confronts her. And I find it interesting here Um that he confronts Abraham about it. That's a detail you might have missed. He doesn't talk directly to Sarah about it first. Who does he talk to? Sarah's husband. So why did Sarah laugh when I said this? Uh, That's something to ponder, isn't it? But God always upholds the order in the home. Something good to know about sin. It says in Matthew 10, 26, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. I can tell you, that discerning and uncovering a lie in another person is one of the hardest things you can ever try to do. Very hard. Because all we can do is stand on the outside and try to get the person to confess or to reveal what's gone on. Very difficult. It's not so difficult for God. Look at the encounter. Why did you laugh or why did Sarah laugh? Then she denies it, she lies and says, I did not laugh. And what did he say? Yes, you did laugh. End of discussion. Isn't that interesting? It reminds me of Judgment Day, right? Is there going to be any way to deceive the Lord on Judgment Day? I didn't do that. Yes, you did. And that's it. There's nothing more after this in the text, right? Yes, you did laugh. There's no need to go on because the Lord knows all things. And so it says in Romans 2.16, Paul talking about Judgment Day, he says, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So our secrets are going to be laid bare. And then only the blood of Jesus Christ will suffice that we might have forgiveness of sins. Finally, we see advancing knowledge of God's incredible power. Not only is Sarah's heart unfolded and revealed, we also see God. We see God's supernatural knowledge. He knows the future. He knows exactly when Sarah will have her child. He knows the secrets of the heart. He knows what Sarah said in her own heart. So we see God's supernatural knowledge. We also see God's sovereign power. As a king, God gets to decide when the child's going to be born. He knows the exact best time. The best time was when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah 90. He set the time because he's a king. He's wise and he's sovereign. He's powerful. And no one can stay his hand or thwart his plan. That child will be born in due time. And we see God's beautiful declaration of his own power. Look at verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Nothing is beyond God's capacity. Nothing beyond His power. He can do anything. He can raise the dead. He can save a sinner and He can give a child to an aged couple. He can do anything. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Today we've seen two aspects of intimacy between God and Abraham. We've seen the intimate fellowship meal with Abraham and how it's, it's replayed again and again in symbolic ways in Scripture. And we're going to see in a moment as we come to the Lord's table, we're going to see what Christ established as a repeated pattern so that we would think about the intimacy that waits for us in heaven, our future intimacy with God himself. And so we saw God's intimate meal with Abraham. Secondly, we've seen God's intimate personal revelation to Abraham about Sarah. Now, God willing, next week we're going to look at God's intimate public revelation to Abraham about Sodom and then an incredible encounter of intercession between Abraham and God uh, that you will not want to miss. Now, in terms of application, can I say first and foremost, as I've said twice already, draw near to God. Don't stay on the outside. Don't stay out in the cold listening to the clink of China and and the laughter of a fellowship meal and you're not invited you are invited I'm standing here as Christ's representative saying come into the feast repent turn away from the sin that separated you from God trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone and come into the fellowship meal the Lord's Supper is just a a picture of that when we take the the, the bread and when we drink the the cup, we are thinking of a future fellowship meal in heaven with God forever, among other things. And we're thinking about the price that was paid to get us there. And so don't stay on the outside. And can I say to you, whether you're a Christian or not, both all of us need to come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins and restoration all the time, don't we? Even if you have already trusted in Christ, you know that sin has separated you from God this week. And maybe as you're sitting in the pew this morning, you are feeling a lack of intimacy with God. You're feeling separated, and you know why, don't you? You're going to have an opportunity while the elements are being passed out to bow your head before the eternal God and confess your sin. Don't miss it. Don't pass up the opportunity to be right with God.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org.